0: This is the Monday, April 23rd, 2018 episode of the History Authors Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
1: Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. and this is the History Author Show on iArt radio. In this episode, our time machine travels back 100 years to witness the split-second explosion that blew a chunk of Halifax, Nova Scotia off the map. Today, it's hard to imagine a place farther from the stench of death and war and the Western Front than Halifax, Earth's second largest natural port behind Sydney, Australia and a picturesque town in Canada to visit if you're ever looking for a trip. Yet on December 6, 1917, Halifax suffered the largest man-made explosion prior to the bombs that ended World War II. Incredibly, the Halifax blast was up to a third as powerful as the Nagasaki device, even resulting in a mushroom cloud visible for miles around, something that caught the attention of a young physicist named Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. On the shore, as two ships collide in an event that would claim thousands of lives, is John U. Bacon, author of The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. John U. Bacon teaches at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism and the University of Michigan. He's written five New York Times bestsellers, including Three and Out, Fourth and Long, and End Zone. You can catch him often on NPR and national TV, as well as at johnubacon.com, John U. Bacon on Twitter, or Facebook.com slash John Bacon Author. Now that we've boarded the doomed S.S. Mont Blanc, a French cargo ship packed with high explosives bound for the Western Front, let's travel back to mark the centennial of the Great Halifax Explosion. I'm joined on the line by John U. Bacon, author of The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you. I can't sing the praises of this book enough. It's really something. And the way that I just explained it to you before we started recording was that It's a great book when you think to yourself, gosh, I'm scared that I might not have read it. This is such a great story, and I enjoy it so much, full of so many moments that are so human, and it reads as such an exciting tale. You can really feel you're there with your grandparents being told this story. Let's start with part one of The Great Halifax Explosion, which you title A Forgotten Story. How could something so loud, so destructive and with such far reaching consequences for humanity possibly have been forgotten?
2: It is gigantic. It is one fifth the power of the first atomic bomb and my grandfather, Wally Graham, I was twelve years old when this happened in nineteen seventeen and told me about this pretty much every summer of my life in New Brunswick when I was vacationing there. And he told me about a you know, a cannon weighing a ton. Uh, going three miles to the east and a anchor shaft weighing a 1,000 pounds, going four miles to the west and so on. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't think he was lying, but I had never heard about, about it anywhere else until by sheer luck, really. I was doing my first book on the history of the University of Michigan hockey team. And it turns out the first coach, the founder of the program, it's a guy named Ernest Bars, well known now to you having read the book, and I was talking to his son, then in his 80s, in uh, 1999, and he said that he was a survivor of the Halifax explosion. And I said, well, what was that? And as he started explaining it to me, I realized this is exactly what my grandfather was talking about. He wasn't crazy, he wasn't lying, <laughs> is what he's talking about. And when I started digging into it, I realized, wow, it's even more incredible than my grandfather had described. He was not exaggerating, he was underestimating, if anything the sheer magnitude of this explosion. It's amazing as Americans that we don't know about this. Again, one-fifth of power of the atomic bomb wipes out half a city. Um, It is studied by uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer at a conference at Cal Berkeley in 1942 for the sole purpose of trying to predict what is going to happen to Hiroshima when that bomb is dropped because there's no other model out there in the world than Halifax. So that's how big this thing is. And incredibly, we don't know almost nothing about it.
1: And I asked my wife, who went to Bathurst High School in New Brunswick, what did you learn about this? Because she had heard of it. They taught it in middle school. And she said... Even at that, it wasn't something that was this huge thing. You you would think that this would be something that made such a massive impression, but that's part of history, I guess. By the time she was in school, this had passed out of the living memory pretty much. So they just mentioned it, and you couldn't even conceive of it. I'm sure, as, as a kid in middle school, of this SS Mont Blanc carrying so much explosives that that it makes this huge blast. And you do a very good job here in the Great Halifax Explosion of Comparing things and always giving a point of reference for instance you say the six million pounds of explosives on the ship are 13 times the weight of the Statue of Liberty so that gives you something to visualize I think and that's great for anybody reading not just kids think of 13 Statues of Liberty there and then think of the crew that is on board to transport it not only from Brooklyn up to Halifax but then across that U-boat infested North Atlantic to Europe who is the captain who took on what looks like a suicide mission?
2: All great points there, of course. And it's funny how you tweak certain small things in a book, Dean, and some pay off and, of course, some don't. But describing it as 13 times the weight of the Statue of Liberty, these numbers are so large you can't quite grasp them. So to hear that, of course, does place it in context. We also debated describing it as 6 million pounds of explosives or 3,000 tons. And it turns out 6 million pounds is like a lot more than, than 3,000 tons. It's all the same, mm. of course, but that's how it works. How it happens, of course, is that this ship gets loaded on in Gravesend Bay, New York, which is Brooklyn, uh, in November of 1917. And you have to understand that the Great War, as it was called then, not World War I, it was not going well. The Allied powers, of course, and the uh, central powers of Germany, Austria, and Hungary it was a tug of war for three years pretty much until the russians drop out in november of 1917 the bolshevik revolution has succeeded and lenin and stalin they went out and they get out and now you've got no eastern front only a western front and now the allied powers are deeply concerned france britain and canada they're going to get mowed over and now without reason and the us is barely in the war at this point so what do you do you overreact and you overreact by putting 6 million pounds of high explosives. High explosives was the atomic power of its age. Uh, these are things like TNT, picric acid, that don't need an oxygen accelerator to blow up. It's already built into the molecule, basically. So far more powerful than gasoline or fireworks and so on. They load this in the ship. They crawl up the coast to Halifax. and the morning of December 6th, uh, Thursday, they're dying to get into the harbor right as a ship, Imo, a Norwegian relief ship, is dying to get out of the harbor and go the opposite direction toward New York, and that's where the drama starts.
1: I was thinking that if this had happened at sea, you never would have found any trace of it. I mean, that that's amazing. Here's this massive ship at 320 feet, and this blast goes up, and it's just gone. It's just vaporized, and so is the pier, Pier 6, which they'd built to withstand hurricanes, which do occasionally get way up there to Halifax, and it's gone. There's there's hardly anything to find. It's so staggering, and it's almost as if it's so big that it wipes itself out of history. I mean, I know that that's not the case, because mm. obviously the scars are for a long time, but it's just so massive, and it, it shows you what, what is it that really endorsed is that spoken history from your grandparents. If they don't mention it, we never have this book in our hands to remind people of a lot of the tendrils of it, one of which we'll talk about, I guess between Boston and Halifax every Christmas that brings it back today, where we can experience it now because it was so loud and so big, yet in the aftermath of it, people aren't sitting there thinking, well, let's write it down. And it's it's painful for that first generation that actually lived through it. There's many of these stats to compare it. Six times hotter than molten lava, for instance, a 35-foot tidal wave. How did you go about Sifting through all of those numbers to accurately recount the moment that the ship vaporized, since there's not as if there's somebody that, that's right on there that could tell you what it felt like when it exploded.
2: Uh, all good points, Dean. I would say uh, trial and error describes <laughs> my methodology here. It is very difficult as a writer, of course, when something happens this quickly, and to back that up, how quickly did it happen? in one-fifteenth of a second, which is about five times faster than it takes to blink. As you said, the hold of the ship, the temperature skyrockets to uh, 9,000 degrees, six times hotter than molten lava. It explodes in all directions at 3,400 miles per hour, that is four times the speed of sound. So it's going up and down and east, west, north, south all at once. And in that split second, half of Halifax is gone. 25,000 are homeless. Uh, 9,000 are wounded, and 1,600 are killed instantly. And now the question is, of the 9,000 who are wounded, how many of those can you save when you're not at all prepared for any of this, when half your doctors have also been, you know, of course, wiped out, and you've got a blizzard coming in, who can get there, who can help, how can you possibly pull this off? So in that split second, how do you write this chat, these chapters? And I decided to write it kind of inside out. Start with the hold of the ship, and build outward and then show circle by circle, concentric circles, what happened to whom as it happens, and then finally how they respond to it, of course, which is when you go from disaster to heroism, and I think a really reassuring part of the story. The sheer magnitude of this is overwhelming, and I love you for your earlier line, Dean, that you're scared you almost missed this story. (laughs) And I hope other readers feel the same. It's an amazing story, no matter who tells it but it is an incredible story of tragedy and heroism.
1: It has so many of those moments where you go, oh, come on. That's how I always describe it. In this case, it was Doug Stanton who gave me the book or told me, have you heard about the great Halifax explosion? And I pictured the bomber. Actually, at first I thought it was about the Halifax bomber because I was thinking war and, that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. he said no in the actual in Halifax. And I asked my wife, who is Canadian, about it, and she started reading. I happened to be in the kitchen cooking at this point, and she's reading to me these various stats that you fold here into the Great Halifax Explosion. And I just kept stopping and saying, "Oh come on, you know I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Are you kidding me? That the recitation of things is so incredible. And I imagine that it was a challenge for you to be able to make that into a narrative, to have it not just be a laundry list of things and get some of the human element into it. People are are vaporized. There's no way to identify them, for instance. So that's hard. There's one stat here about how long after the blast and where the last victim was found that stood out to me. That's one person here in these 1600 who die, right? That really makes it come home to me how long it is before this guy can be put to rest. Incredible.
2: Yeah. About a year and a half away from the actual explosion um i think one of the keys to telling this story is to not simply be consumed by the explosion itself which is incredible if you read john hersey's hiroshima that was a model for this you follow a certain number of people uh, before it happens so you care about the people before it happens the kids the soldiers the doctors in town um and then it happens and you see what happens to these people during that process as well as afterwards. Now, not all survive, of course, um, but many did. And what they did and how it changed their lives is quite moving. And what's incredible about this is in a terrorist attack, which we're all too you know familiar with, these guys know when they wake up, they're gonna pull off 9-11, that's the idea. Uh, when these guys wake up and these people in the harbor, no one knows what's gonna happen, it's not intentional. And certainly the heroes by noon of that day, by midnight of that night, they have no idea when they wake up and they're shaving and bathing and the and getting dressed for work they have no idea that they're going to be called upon to save lives of strangers out of burning buildings uh, out of sinking ships people on the roadway you name it they're going to be called upon to be heroes and yet they rose to that occasion so when you see clearly normal everyday people ordinary people become extraordinary heroes during this process that to me is when the story really takes off because I can't speak for you, Dean, but these days we read about what? Terrorists and gunmen and sexual predators and a lot of bad news in the news these days, of course, pretty much nonstop for quite a while. This book restores the incredible heroism of ordinary people doing the right thing when no one ever thinks it's gonna be recorded and remembered a hundred years later, what it is now. So restoring their character and their great deeds to me that was the best part of the story.
1: It's great because they are real people that rise to this occasion, and there's nobody to call. No, Even if the, nobody exists yet, is born yet, that you could call and say, how do we deal with this? Because right. when you look at those pictures, I'm looking at one now in the Great Halifax Explosion, and it's just total devastation all around. And it's the night after the explosion. talks about that the worst blizzard in a decade comes in. 16 inches of snow as if they didn't have enough trouble already in 45-mile-an-hour winds. And they're just little black figures there. You can only barely tell their people because you can see they have legs. You can see the shape. But they were real people. And they were there seeing such horror. They'd certainly lost people they know, if not members of their family, if not their whole family. And yet they're out there when you would have everything probably in you, in your heart and your soul, telling you to just crawl up in a ball in the corner and just take care of yourself. And yet they're out there collecting bodies, trying to give people help when they can. People lose their sight. You talked about the atomic bomb that we hear about and we can maybe relate to, even though we haven't experienced it. You have people that can't even see, that can't take care of themselves, that are horribly burned. There's so much that you have to get up and help with because... Halifax, it's not a major metropolis. We've all heard of it, but it's not where you're in New York City and, okay, there's the other boroughs and there's New Jersey and Connecticut. Maybe you could go not too far away, an hour away and get help. Tell us a little bit about how isolated it was and why, if anything, was going to get done. It just had to be these average Haligonians.
2: Well, exactly right. One of my favorite stories is that of Vincent Coleman, a telegram operator, the train dispatcher, Right outside of Pier 6, he hears about this, and he's the only antidote to the isolationism you speak about. A guy from the harbor, a sailor, who overheard the crew taking off before the ship blew up, he overhears about explosives, so he knows it's about to blow-up at Pier 6 in Halifax, and he runs up the hill toward the train dispatcher's office and says there are explosives in that ship burning out there by Pier 6, and it's going to explode any second now, You have to evacuate, and so Vincent Coleman tells his staff, run, and he starts running also, and then he stops when he remembers that the number 10 train from St. John, to Brunswick is due in the station in about 5 or 10 minutes, and it'll park very close to Pier 6 and will blow up if it's there, so he thinks about it for a second. He pauses, and then he runs, not walks, runs back to his train dispatcher's office where he furiously rattles off as fast as he can, telegrams Morse code, of course, to all the train stations in the area saying, stop, explosives on ship at Pier 6 will explode. And then he adds, guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. And of course, at 9.04, the ship does, in fact, blow up. It was his last message. He was killed, President Coleman. But that message gets out. And it gets out before all the train, the telegram lines come down, the telephone lines come down. There is no way, back to your point about isolationism, there is no way to get any message out during this time except for Vincent Coleman's message, which tells people in Wolfville and our way, our friend Joseph Ernest Barge we talked about earlier, and others get the message. They don't know what happened. They assume was overrated, exaggerated, not that big a deal. But they also are coming into Halifax from around the province, And when they get there, they discover it's far worse than they could have ever imagined. As uh, Joseph Barr says, he says that there's not one stick or stone standing on another. It is basically Hiroshima. And if you've seen those photos, you see the occasional barren tree in the distance, rubble of buildings, and almost no human beings. It's just a moonscape, basically. So when they're there, they can't believe what they're seeing. But back to the earlier question, you've got 9,000 wounded. How many can you save? Joseph Barr is knowing merely first aid being a World War I casualty and a former soldier they all know first aid. He ends up performing operations by the end of the third days that he 's got no business performing, but it 's all hands on deck. every hospital's got ten times its capacity. The doctors are doing surgeries on their dining room tables uh, nurses are doing anesthesiology when they 've got anesthesia it 's incredible it 's all hands on deck and Within 24 hours, they see about 90% of the 9,000 people are seen in the first 24 hours in some capacity. So not a pretty scene. They're not cured, but they save thousands of lives during that stretch despite being utterly isolated, which is made worse, Dean, as you know, because that night is the worst blizzard in 10 years in Nova Scotia, and at this point, as you said earlier, you can't believe like the world is throwing everything it possibly can at this city. You've got the explosion, you've got the tsunami that happens afterwards that drowns those who weren't killed initially, you've got fires all over town because they just finished making breakfast. So the Franklin stoves are still burning, and now they're on fire the clapboard houses. And then that night, you've got a blizzard incredibly on top of all the rest. So here you are, how can you possibly survive in this situation? And it starts the locals, as you know, uh, helping strangers, helping strangers is what it boils down to. And for the first 24 hours or so, it works amazingly well, but they do need help from outside, as you know.
1: And when you think of 1917, the Great War propels medicine ahead, World War II, then eventually we get penicillin, we think about all these things, we do take them for granted. But even the greatest medical care at the time is not prepared to deal with one person that has these sorts of horrible injuries to save their lives they're certainly not going to have any of the supplies there so much has just been destroyed so a lot of it is just what we would consider first aid the most basic care right now and because ernie bars has served in the great war what a perfect narrator or a perfect pair of eyes to be in here because he's already seen that carnage and here he is at home and is sleepy little town and i guess it's easy to romanticize it because i've been there it's a a nice place and you think of gosh you're home you're on the home front that's where soldiers want to go you want to adjust and try to get back into that world and the war the carnage of the war even though he's not targeted by an enemy it follows him home and then this explosion happens and all of the injuries and all the challenges that go along with it. And so he's telling us what, what went on there. He's the perfect person to compare it and bring it into that wider picture of what's happening in the world with this first mechanized war and all the horrors that are over there. Who would have thought without picking up the great Halifax explosion that the war comes home right there to Halifax, right here in North America? That's a good way to phrase
2: it, the war comes home to Halifax. Halifax has been the conduit at this point to all the supplies from British North America, as Canada was called oftentimes during that stretch. For the Revolutionary War of 1776, the War of 1812, it was the uh, hotbed of British resistance to the Americans, of course. Civil War, Confederate ships often would get safe haven in Halifax, because Halifax wanted the cotton. Now, in World War I, Halifax is the spigot of all things going to the European theater, which is where the war is fought, of course. So Canadian soldiers, American soldiers from the East Indies, from Australia even, New Zealand, you name it, all the supplies, the soldiers, all go through Halifax. So Halifax knows war, but not really, because it's not really affected them yet. Supplies leave there, dead soldiers come back, sadly, but it's not really fought there until this time. Joseph Bars is the perfect character to tie it all together. He is born in India in 1892, the son of Baptist missionaries. His mom almost dies in childbirth, so he's the only child. Uh, They go back to uh, Wolfville, Nova Scotia, about an hour from Halifax. He grows up there. He's a three-sport star, four-sport star, really, at Acadia University, despite being only 5'8". Football, hockey, baseball, and boxing. He's a very good boxer. He's only 5'8". Graduates at 19, goes to Montreal to make his fortune, making good money, but he's got no sense of purpose. And then, of course, the Great War breaks out. He signs up right away. He's all gung-ho goes into the trenches of World War I, and we've got his correspondence, he's a great letter writer, and he's wonderful. And he, at first is all gung ho, but man, after a while you can see his tone change in these letters Well finally you realize, man, I'll take a bullet in the arm, I'll take an office desk job in London, I will do anything to get out of here at this point. And of course he gets hit two days after that letter, he gets blown across the field by a German shell. Supposed to die, he survives, supposed to be paralyzed and he's determined to walk again anyway and makes himself do that for a year and then this explosion happens an hour away and he goes in there not knowing what to expect by the end of the weekend of doing all these surgeries and he realizes, okay I don't want to be a businessman in Montreal or a soldier or a hockey player he's pretty good Uh, he wants to be a doctor and his uncle gives him a hundred dollars and says go to the University of Michigan and back then, Dean, $100 would get you in, apparently. You know, I won't buy you half a textbook. <laughs> but he gets into U of M. And it turns out he's going to school with my great uncle. Bars and bacon are two photos away in the 1924 graduation photo, which I had no idea about. Hmm. That's how I found out about the guy through dumb luck. An amazing guy. And while he's a medical school student, he marries an American. He becomes an American citizen, which is saying a lot for a staunch Canadian has two kids there, and then during all this, guys guy's got such amazing energy, he decides to start Michigan's hockey program. And the AD says, we need one, you're right, but only if you're the head coach. And that is how Michigan got hockey. They've huh. now lead the nation with nine <laughs> NCAA titles. Wow. An amazing record they've got. It all starts with Joseph Bars. I grew up playing in that building, and I would not have for it not for Joseph Bars.
1: Now, listeners can see exactly what I mean about oh, come on, moments. Look at the serendipity here to tell that story. You were—you really have to feel that you were meant to tell it. Another author could have gone through the newspapers and could have gone through some of these first-person accounts, but to have connections like that, to see him with somebody and to be in that building, it really brings the guy alive. You have to remind yourself that it's not right now. He's not right now in the stands cheering for Michigan.
2: I love that. And I guess one of the great honors, if you will, of writing history, especially 100-year-old history, is restoring the lives of people who mattered 100 years ago who've been forgotten but should not be. My mom told me when I was a kid, Dean, that your character is what you do when you think no one's watching, and the people in the story pass that test a 1,000 times. And then to go back 100 years later and tell the story about the strangers who helped strangers, uh, the kids who saved lives, The moms who took people in, strangers, in for three and four months while their parents were covered. The dads who saw fit to put their neighborhoods back together again after they had blown up. These stories are wonderful to tell. And one of my favorite stories takes place in Truro, Nova Scotia, about an hour from Halifax. A lot of families, the second it happened, realized they have to get out of town because the town is flooded with victims. So the Driscoll family, for example, got on a train, headed north to uh, Truro. They got out there and they received medical help from strangers. They were billeted by strangers. These two boys were in one of the houses and they still had the glass shards and the wood chips and the oil from this explosion in their hair, which is very stubborn and hard to get out. So finally their mom gives them a dollar and says, go to the local barber and get a haircut. So they settle in, they're in there for their haircuts, and when the barber is shaving the back of noble driscoll's head the kid winces and says ow and the barber looks a little closer and sees glass shards and just from that alone he says ah you must be from halifax he knew already so he walked across to talk to his partners his barber partner's uh, ear and they whisper for a little bit and they go on back and they tell their customers no more customers today no more walk-ins come back tomorrow and while they're there they start cutting their hair, they wash their hair not once but twice to get this oil out. And as they're doing this, the two brothers are thinking, wow, this feels great, but there's no way a dollar covers these two haircuts with two hair washes each and so on and all the special attention. So they're feeling very, very guilty about this and sheepish when they finish to give the barber a dollar for all this, knowing that it's not nearly enough. And the barber waves off the dollar and says, come with me, lads, and walks across the street a wardrobe store, of course, a clothing store, and buys them both new complete outfits, because all their clothes are gone also. Uh, So buys them new complete outfits and dresses them. And we don't know the barber's name. The kids didn't know the names either. But here we are 100 years later, Dean, talking about the simple act of generosity, compassion, human kindness that lives on a century later. And that makes me feel good to bring that back to life.
1: I love it because I go and interview people like, The Fellow Runs Callahan's Hot Dogs, which his grandfather started after World War II here in New Jersey. Right, And I say, you know, not everyone writes history books like you will write The Great Halifax Explosion. You might be writing it with ketchup and mustard like his grandfather did, and he still wears the dog tags of his grandfather from World War II. That was important to him to start that stand and make it part of the community as we would think of it today. But he just wanted to start a business. It was a dream he had, and his grandson wanted to take it over and continue the legacy and it became a real part here of North Jersey, Fort Lee in particular, where my dad grew up and he took my mom there on his first date. And so many people have those same stories, just about this little burger and hot dog stand, Callahan's Hot Dogs. I love it. You never know, right? What's going to be the thing that you do that makes you part of somebody's story in history? And I always think that when I read presidential bios The person who saved young Grover Cleveland from a speeding carriage down the street in Caldwell, New Jersey. We don't know who that guy is, but he saved a president. Theodore Roosevelt used to do taxidermy when he was a little kid and he had his toothbrush that he used to cure the birds and the other little varmints that he had. And you used arsenic. Well, a (laughs) maid saw the toothbrush out and she put it in his kit where he brushed his teeth with his other toothbrushes and fortunately he recognized it or he would have brushed his teeth with arsenic and we'd never know who Theodore Roosevelt was he would have just been another nameless kid in New York City that died under one of these weird circumstances you never know what positive or ill and you hope it'll be positive like you said when nobody's looking you don't know who you're going to save or who's going to want to write about you one day as an, as an amazing person that took a moment to do an act of kindness so many of those stories here and I, I am really am passionate about you having brought them back. I'm glad to play a small part in that right now.
2: Well, Dean, I appreciate that. But with your hot dog stand and Theodore Roosevelt, for whom our son is named Teddy, by the way. Hey. How about that? Two and a half years old. Uh, You hit upon the central theme, which is that we were told too often in history. And I had great teachers in public schools and high school and University of Michigan's own history major, of course. Too often we're told, though, that history is this big glacier that comes in, it slides in inexorably, you can't stop it, and it changes everything, then it slides out in its own pace, and we are helpless and we're uh, we're too insignificant. And I don't buy it. I believe that individuals matter and moments matter, and you described a few of them yourself, and we can go through history, of course. Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey meeting in 1945, it never ends, these stories. And this book is full of stories where individuals who met their moment made a colossal difference and saved lives. And when you hear these survivors talk in their 70s and 80s, in the 1980s and 1990s, thanks to great interviews being conducted before I arrived on the scene here, you realize that, you know, my gosh, you saved my life. And this simple act of kindness, I have never forgotten. And, and that also changed my life. That we have these opportunities throughout our lives, to actually make a difference. This is a very optimistic and hopeful story, in my opinion. And again, if you're tired of reading about the bad guys, come celebrate the good guys. They're unknown, <laughs> but they're trying to be restored now, and they'll make you feel good about humanity when you read the book.
1: My guest making us feel good about humanity today is John Eubacon, and his book is The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. You can find our guest online at JohnUBacon.com, John U. Bacon on Twitter, or Facebook.com slash U author. Doug Stanton, who we chatted with about his book on the Vietnam War, the Odyssey of Echo Company, and who I mentioned connected me with John U. Bacon, writes of the Great Halifax Explosion quote, Fans of Ken Burns, Daniel James Brown's The Boys in the Boat and John Hersey's Hiroshima, we'll find in John Bacon's Meticulous Reporting a story that literally rocked the world. This is a story with enormous heart. This is an author with astounding range. John, that phrase, meticulous reporting, out of that really passionate review is excellent for wire stories or straight chronicling of events, but The Great Halifax Explosion reads almost like a novel, the way you've crafted it, the way you've brought to life characters, even including some humorous moments to break up the carnage a little bit, things in people's lives that you could feel the people groping for something positive, something to feel good when they just look out if they even have a window and see all this devastation around them. How did you go about whittling that library of what could have just been cold stats, not to mention the legalese when we get to the trial down to the final book so that it reads like a longer version of that story your grandparents shared with you?
2: I appreciate that Dean behind me. As I sit here, my study slash office, I'm looking at about 80 or 90 books that went into this book. That is about 15 or 20 about the explosion itself, those about Halifax, about Canadian-U.S. relationships, of course, explosives from the 1917 era, cars from that era, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It never ends. (laughs) So your job, of course, is to boil that down. The first answer is, Dean, I got a lot of help. My wife is a great reader and a great researcher. I had friends read various drafts to winnow out things. We probably cut about a third of the book, sadly, but had to for various things. What you try to do throughout is decide, okay, what story exactly am i trying to tell because you can't tell them all and you can't tell everything that matters about the halifax explosion so you pick about seven or eight characters if you will and say okay these are my favorites these are the coolest people i've met in the story let's follow them and see how they feel and what their lives are like before the explosion let's see how they respond to their explosion and let's see what they do afterwards and that ends being i believe fascinating case studies in human behavior under unbelievable stress and duress and horrible circumstances, and what they did was pretty cool. How they thought about it—it's so so hard for them to get a hold of what all happened. So that's only part of it. Also, I can tell you, Dean, I did fifteen drafts of this book, and each time you do it, of course, it gets better. You you start highlighting the better parts, start cutting the lesser parts. And I'll go back to my friend, Elmore Leonard, the famous crime novelist who wrote Get Shorty and Be Cool, which became big movies with John Travolta and other movies along those lines. He said, you know those boring parts and books that you skip? I said, yeah. He said, I cut those out. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, okay, that's my plan. So whenever I thought... It's like a necessary thing you have to learn about this. It's like vegetables. No, no, no vegetables, you know, only dessert. (laughs) And that was our plan here is that even make the vegetables tasty, that learning about explosives should be interesting, not dull. Learning about U.S.-Canadian relationships should be interesting, not dull. Learning about these people beforehand should be interesting, not dull. So always the message was any page you flip to should be an interesting page that draws you into the rest of the story. So with that as our guiding light, We became pretty ruthless about what we cut, and hopefully it worked. And so far, the review's been very good.
1: Well, you can't see because it's radio, but I'm nodding as you're saying it and thinking of a bunch of different things. And one of them, when I'm picturing all those books you have, is something that my sister-in-law, one of my sister-in-laws, who's a hairdresser, told me once when I was a young man and I was concerned about when she was cutting my hair, now – God has had a way. He has to give everyone something. So he's decided to take away the problem of me worrying about how long my bangs were, let's say, by taking away my <laughs> hair. But uh she said, don't worry. It doesn't matter how much I take off. It's what I leave on that counts. As you're talking about the Great Halifax Explosion, I'm thinking of cutting things down and trying to make it shorter, wash it again and get some of that oil out. It's really a process where you have to juggle all those factors have all these moving parts and then get to a trial so it's novel at first and then it morphs from a novel into a bit of a legal thriller where in the aftermath of the blast you do have a human component you do want to know well after you get over that stunned shock and dealing with burying the dead and helping the wounded of saying who did this to us so how did you get to that? How did you not get bogged down with legalese, especially since you just told us you had that in mind of not making any page be one you skim? That's something I always look for in a book, and I found it here in the Great Halifax Explosion where it defied any attempt to skim it and get to the end. You you did want to read every page. So law could really be like walking through a bog there. We talked about hockey, skating on some, some bad ice when it gets warm, you know, and you're pushing your way through. So how did you go about that to fold in the legal part to find out who was responsible.
2: and a few sources on that, of course. There are three or four books devoted only to the legal aspects of this case. Of course, I mean, this bad happens, like 9-11, you want to know, okay, who's to blame and how do we get them, basically. And uh, this case is a lot more complicated than it was in 9-11. 9-11, we know there are 19 guys who, of course, boarded planes that day, Breaks down from there. In this case, it was unintentional, it was an accident. So how does that all break down? So, Those chapters, by the way, that you read, and thank you for that, were some of the more complicated ones that I worked with. The explosive chapter, learning about chemistry, was a tricky thing for me to make it interesting. Likewise, the legal side, you can get bogged down in, as you said, very easily. It goes on for several books. Here I could not do that. I had, you know, five, ten pages maybe to keep it fast moving. And the thing about this that becomes very clear very early is it is very difficult to ascribe blame, complete blame, to anybody in the fog of war, which is what this kind of is. Uh, The one ship, Mount Blanc, knew it had six million pounds of high explosives on it, so it should have been more careful. But the ship going the other way, the Emo, had no idea Mount Blanc had this cargo on hold. So it was going way too fast, passing ships on the left, which is also a bad idea on a two-lane road as it is in a two-lane bottleneck of the harbor, which was the Narrows. Um, finally, ends up in the wrong lane, facing Mount Blanc, and at this point, Mount Blanc is shocked to see this ship bearing down on it early on Thursday morning, December 6, 1917. So it emits one blast of its horn, and that one blast is supposed to indicate, I am on my course, in the proper course, you are not, I'm going to hold my course, you have to respond to me, and email comes back with two blasts, and that is basically the nautical language for, screw you, I don't care. <laughs> I'm, I'm going way too fast. I'm in your lane. You better move to me. And Mount Blanc with the explosives cannot believe this is happening, so comes back again with one blast, and then Ema comes back with two blasts again. So by now, you've got a game of chicken going on in the middle of the harbor. Not what you want when you're carrying these explosives. And at this point, it's kind of like two people in a hallway trying to avoid each other, So, I'm supposed to be on the right side, you're supposed to be on the left side, but we're not paying attention, we're on our phones, whatever. We look up, we're facing each other, and we both go the same way at the same time, then go the other same way at the same time. We kind of chuckle, we bump each other, not a big deal. These two ships finally collide, and then, of course, the Mont Blanc knows what's on it, so the crew takes off for the woods of Dartmouth across the harbor and warns nobody in the process. That's a crucial. Sin, in my view, the ship blows up at pier six, the ghost ship does, and then afterwards they express no remorse and help nobody out in the process so, in that sense, to boil it down, Mont Blanc is not very guilty at all of the early collision that 's mainly the emo 's fault by going too fast in the wrong lane, and they bump into the ship. The captain and the harbor pilot for emo were both killed in the explosion, so That justice is pointless, of course, but the guys in Mont Blanc, all but one of them survive, and they're not really guilty of the collision, but they are guilty, in my opinion, morally, if not legally, of not warning anybody and not helping anybody and expressing no remorse. So at the end of the day, they're found about equally guilty with the emo, which is not quite right nautically, but in the scope of the universal justice, maybe about right, so not entirely satisfying there. But fascinating to see how these four different court cases, two in Halifax, one in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, and one in London, 25 and a years later, how they all play out with French-Canadian relations, with Canadian-British relations. It's a complicated process and fascinating to see how the law impacts what happened so quickly.
1: You also described and hinted at here the adversarial relationship between the U.S. and Canada, At the time that this happens, the War of 1812, the looking the other way at the Confederates and thinking maybe it wouldn't be so bad if the country split apart from their point of view. Tories, the loyalists going up there, fleeing to places like Halifax. You look at today and it's almost a joke. People chuckle and think you're kind of half kidding when you say for bars to become an American was a big deal. My wife has become an American citizen from Canada, so people sometimes think, well, why would you bother? People have said that to her, not meaning any malice, but at the time when you look at U.S.-Canada, U.S.-British relations, they're not very big Kumaya. We've never been on the same side of a war, you say, until the Great War, you point out here in the book. This explosion, all this horror of all things, is the catalyst to where we are in the 21st century, where the 49th parallel is the world's largest undefended border, and where these people from America come to help, and we start to be on the same side of things.
2: You're right about that, of course. That was one of the great discoveries of this process and I knew there's some tensions between Canada and the US historically. My mom was, was Canadian, born and raised in New Brunswick which is a t- of course attached to Nova Scotia and Maine. My grandfather told me about the story and of course my name being Bacon, I'm in fact being half Canadian Bacon. So there's your joke, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, your wife is from Bathurst, New Brunswick. They pronounce it Bathurst as you know with a French-Canadian accent, is she French-Canadian?
1: No, she's not French. And then Canadian.
2: in batters, she's in the minority.
1: Irish-Irish. There you go. Irish-Irish, yeah, so English. There you go.
2: She probably speaks speak some French, though. But anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: I was shocked to learn just how much we were not allies before 1917. In fact, you have to say flat-out enemies, maybe half-hearted en- enemies, but not allies by a long shot. And obviously, it starts in 1776, the Revolutionary War. About 60,000 New Englanders, bolt leave New England to basically settle Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, the maritime provinces. So that's how they found those provinces, basically. And of course, they don't feel too warmly towards the Americans at this stage. 1812, we fight each other, and it's these guys, of course, who burn the White House. They don't burn it down, they can't burn it, but that ends up making them whitewash the building again. That's why it's called the White House. So you can thank a guy buried in Halifax Cemetery that little act of treason but anyway so that's 1812 civil war they actually took the side unofficially of of the confederates they needed the cotton so they were not supportive of the union side at that point and they feared a union invasion at all times and in 1911 the speaker of the house of the u.s congress the paul ryan of his day takes the floor of the u.s congress to advocate for the annexation of canada (laughs) in 1911 is met not with laughs or guffaws, but loud cheers. He receives an ovation for this idea. This is a good idea, not a crazy man's idea, but a good idea to annex Canada in 1911. So we're not friends. And when Canada hears about this, they're outraged, and they you know, are determined to keep the Americans out at all costs. And that is three years before the Great War breaks out, and six years before this explosion happened. So you have to say when this explosion happens, you would not necessarily count on any kind of help in the United States. But in fact, Boston comes and others come in droves to help out, even though we're not really, we are technically allies in World War One, but we're not really allies for 141 years before that. So incredibly, the U.S. helps anyway.
1: You alluded to the burning of the White House. John McCabot and Christopher T. George came on and spoke with me about their book, The Man Who Captured Washington, and that's Major General Robert Ross. And you think about fighting a war in in 1812 with the U.S. and with Canada and some of those New England states that were thinking about, maybe it's time to go back with England. Maybe we want to be part of Canada. So that's a book and an interview that I would point people to to get an idea of a time you really have to reset your mind, way pre-NHL, everybody, (laughs) where we're just easily crossing the border and way before NAFTA or anything like that. This was really a time of suspicion you know they had the pan-american exposition up in buffalo in 1901 and canada's right across the river and they barely send anything that's another good thing that comes in the aftermath of this explosion. They didn't put it in Churchill's words, but with the British and Americans being two people separated by a common language, we sort of realize that we're neighbors. And it gets to the point where, speaking of Churchill, he says that if he had to be born again, he'd like to be born in Canada because he'd still wanted to be part of the British Commonwealth and part of the crown, but he'd like to be in North America and be maybe that was part of his mother being an American and his father being British. So right. that's sort of something that happens. And I mentioned the health. There, that the Americans do offer. They load up a train, they're ready if something bad happens. And even though there's no communication, as you said, they decided, let's just get underway and see if we can help. But the local doctors do feel the media focuses a little bit too much on. Maybe you'd say the feel-good story of all these Americans coming. Give those doctors a little of their do now. What do they face in the immediate aftermath before any help arrives from anywhere, before anyone in the outside world even knows or can believe what happened?
2: I covered a lot of ground there, of course, and please send me the book, on Major uh, Robert Ross, because he, he, of course, is a big figure in this story as well. So
1: yeah, I sure will.
0: You're
2: going to hear about that as well. I didn't know the Churchill quote, and I've read a lot of Churchill, so that's pretty good <laughs> stuff there too. The doctors in Halifax, first of all, you've got those who are in Halifax itself, and there's no communication. All the lines are down. No telegrams, no phones, and only their, the rich headphones at that point anyway, but most doctors did, most lawyers did at this stage. Uh, they just know instinctively that this is a disaster, and help is needed. And the Hippocratic Oath is, you gotta go help. So these guys found the hospitals. They, they made hospitals out of the YMCAs and other uh, buildings like that. They worked nonstop, often without sleep, for two, three days. After a day and a half, they're out of anesthesia because no one's ready for this. So they're operating on patients with scalpels that are so dull they can't cut paper by the time they finished these long shifts. They've got no anesthesia. They operated on countless patients with no anesthesia at all. And these patients were incredibly brave, but clearly the doctors were also quite skilled to pull all this off, but saved lives. And as I said, within 24 hours, 90% of the victims of 9,000 were seen by some medical professionals somewhere along the line. We mentioned earlier, Dean, that of the 9,000 wounded, how many of those are gonna survive? And the answer is all but 400. That's an incredibly successful effort for a city not at all prepared for this without the supplies, without the anesthesia. So basically, less than 5% of those who were wounded and wounded severely, let's note, very severely, less than 5% actually died after the fact. And you have to credit the people of Nova Scotia, the first aid workers, the nurses, the doctors, you name it, all pulled together and did incredible feats to save all these lives. Now, at the end of a day and a half, they realized they needed more help, and the telegram from Vincent Coleman had gone out to the provinces and already got to Boston, actually, by 10 a.m. on Thursday morning, about an hour after the explosion. And again, Boston and Canada are not allies at this point in any real sense. Nonetheless, they decide within an hour to meet at Faneuil Hall, well-known to historical people, of course, with 100 great leaders of the city, and they decide, they telegram Halifax saying, What do you need? No response. The wires are down. They telegram again, well, We want to send help. How can we help you? And again, no response. The third telegram is, We're not going to wait for a response. We're going to start sending help now. And these 100 people decide on the spot, really, to send eventually, they send one train, then another train, one ship, then another ship. All the total is 100 doctors, 300 nurses, and a million dollars worth of medical supplies, including much-needed anesthesia. It's about 20 million dollars today. All without even being asked by Halifax. This also requires them, of course, the first train, traveling through New England as well as through New Brunswick. It's on its way into Nova Scotia and runs into Mount Folly in the middle of this horrible blizzard, the worst in 10 years. 16 inches of snow and horrible temperatures, of course, 40-mile-per-hour winds, and they get stuck. And the conductor of the train comes back to uh, Kat Rashetsky, who's a uh, big financier in Boston and a philanthropist, and says, you know, sir, there's no way we can't go any farther. We're stuck by the snow. We can't go. And Reschetsky says a very wise thing. He says, however bad it is for us in this train, we are warm, we are dry, we're safe, we're healthy, we have food. None of that is true for the victims in Halifax down the road, down the tracks here. So we have to find a way to get there. So he gets out and rallies the local people as well as the crew to start digging a hole through this gigantic snowdrift. And they dig about 15 or 20 feet, and they back the train up and send 35 tons of train into the pile again, and it plunges through. They release the steam from the engine to melt as much snow as they can. They back the train up, they dig some more, and they slam the train in there again. And they do this three, four, five times in a row over a couple hours. And they finally bust all the way through, and the local people cheer, the people on the crew cheer, people on the train all cheer. The workers digging out the snow have been working so hard for so long. They, they take their shirts off, for crying out loud, because they're, <laughs> even in this blizzard, they're sweating profusely. Wow. So that's how hard they're working. They get on the train, and get into Halifax Saturday morning, two days after the explosion. And when they arrive, it's the first train to arrive from anywhere, not Montreal, not Toronto, not anywhere else. It's Boston, your ancient foe, as they called them at the time, from across the Bay of Fundy, Boston. And when they arrive, the people of Halifax see the train, and they start crying at the heroism, the courage, and the generosity of Americans at their very best. And that, of course, was never forgotten.
1: And they still send that Christmas tree every year, right, from Halifax down to Boston. This was just the 100th one this past Christmas in 2017. Now it costs, what is it, about 150000 to send it, something like that? $180,000
2: they spend the taxpayers of Nova Scotia every year to spend the whole year to identify the greatest Christmas tree in the province, usually a 50-foot spruce, usually on private land, and the owners donate it for free to this cause. They're honored to be asked. They've got a tree-cutting ceremony. They put the tree on a truck and haul it on into Halifax, where they, of course, drink over this. Halifax, by the way, until Newfoundland was added to Canada. Halifax had the most bars per capita of any city in Canada. My friend, you've been to Canada. That yeah. should tell you something. <laughs> I play hockey. Cause me, those boys can put away their points. Yeah. They know what they're doing. So, And Halifax is the... Uh, drinking this town in all, of, in all of Canada, so that tells you something right there. They ship it on down to Boston with two Nova Scotia flags on the side, and they raise it in the middle of Boston Common, which is America's oldest park, settled in 1634. And they have this tree ceremony, and I was there this last year, and it's a really cool thing, good entertainment and so on. And no one I'm surrounded by has any idea where that tree, tree comes from or why it comes from that, why they're even being thanked. And when that got back to the Nova Scotia taxpayers, they said, you know, why are we doing this? This is very expensive. They don't even know why we're giving it to them from 100 years ago. Why don't we stop? And a woman said, why should we stop thanking them? And I just love that spirit. Again, caring what you do doing, you think no one's watching. We don't care if the average person knows what we're doing this or not. We're doing this because they helped save thousands of people and helped save our city. Months after the fact, Boston committed money, apartments, furniture, clothing, you name it to Halifax. And that bond is forever there, and I love the fact that they still
1: honor that bond. You talked about the lives saved. That doesn't mean that they get well again. Obviously, not everyone's able to do that. And the headline of chapter 28 is Don't Stare. The blast really scarred the town, literally and figuratively, in decades that followed. Uh, it still seems incredible they were able to forget, especially when you had living reminders walking around, horribly scarred, burned people.
2: Exactly. Look, the 9,000 wounded, they survived but it's not mainly the same as you were beforehand. You've got several hundred eye victims, and this actually changes the practice of ophthalmology. Doctors will perform 100 oculations over their two or three days stints. An oculation is an eye removal. Uh, one little girl was walking around the Camp Hill Hospital, curious while her mom was being worked on, so she's just trying to kill time. There's no daycare, of course, in 1917. So she's walking around, and out of curiosity, she looks into a bucket, in the bucket she sees nothing but eyeballs because as the, as the ship was burning in Pier 6 everyone goes to the bay windows of their homes in Halifax kind of like a mini San Francisco they look at their bay windows to look at the fire burning down below they go to their offices and their factories and they all go to the windows so when it blows up that results in hundreds upon hundreds of eye victims basically so that is one aspect there the other thing of course is all the facial injuries which are horrid and this is in the very early days of plastic surgery, so it's not worth very much. So people with these scars, they're almost always blue and black tinged from the high explosive powder. So you can identify not only that you've been injured, but also probably you're a Halifax explosion victim. My great aunt Ruth, my mom's aunt, uh, lived in Halifax, and I got that story from her, that you were trained in Halifax in the 30s and 40s. This is 20 and 30 years after the explosion. When you see somebody with a pretty jagged scar or a fake eye, with a blue tinge, of course, almost always in that scar, you're trained to not stare. They said, don't stare, it's explosion. And that's a hell of a thing to live with for decades. So this affected Halifax for many years. On the flip side, it also changed the practice of pediatric surgery. The man considered the father of pediatric surgery, Dr. William Ladd, is from Boston. And he went up there to help and helping burn victims mainly he's the guy who figured out when you're helping burn victims helping children you're not just helping miniature adults you have to alter your surgical strategy because they're going to grow and change after you do this work so you have to prepare to give room for them to grow in your work basically so he comes back to boston You give him three beds to start his own little wing that is now the boston children's hospital and that's what a big thing it is ask any Pediatric surgeon today, and I've asked several. They say, Who is the father of pediatric surgery? They say, William Ladd. And it all started in Halifax in 1917.
1: Well, there is so much more in this book, and I feel like I've covered a lot of ground and brought a lot of extra stories out there, those extra pages that you had to leave in the cutting room floor and yet still hold so many amazing people in them. One final question When readers finish the Great Halifax Explosion, what do you hope we'll take as inspiration from the heroic shown by so many average people, people whose names we've forgotten and nobody ever thought to write down as we go into our lives here in the 21st century?
2: To boil it down, I'd say a couple quick things. One is that U.S. and Canada don't take for granted our great relationship. It was born of individuals who thought they could make a difference, not presidents and prime ministers, not policy, not economics. It was individuals who helped other individuals when they needed it most with no thought of ever getting repaid. And by the way, Canada is by far the United States' biggest trading partner, almost as much as China, Japan, and Germany combined is what Canada buys from the U.S. every single day. So that was not a business move from Boston helping out Canada, but if it wasn't, it was a a smart one. That's where our, our relationship really starts. But more importantly are the individuals themselves, not the nations involved, that no matter what you read in the paper and see on TV, of human beings usually at their worst. The school gunmen, these things are just so disheartening, so discouraging. And yet you read this book and you realize that human beings are still basically good, even phenomenally good, when they're called upon out of nowhere, the average people average people do the right thing and do it in spades. And that to me is what I took out of this is we are still fundamentally good human beings, Canadians, Americans. And when called upon because of the worst, it brings out the best in all of us. And that was great to celebrate.
1: Well, John Bacon, author of The Great Halifax Explosion, which I'll say again, it scares me to think that I might not have picked it up that Doug Stanton might not have given it to me. Thank you so much for joining me today to remember the victims of that blast, to bring the heroes back to life for us from a 100 years ago, and to share the good that came from so much death and destruction. I wish you the best of luck with the book as North Americans dig into this moment when the U.S. and Canada turn from foes to neighbors, and when we find out we could go to some of those Halifax bars together or Prince Edward Island bars and Hey, Have a pint together instead of arguing.
2: <laughs> I, I know a few I can recommend, no doubt about it. <laughs> so thank you very much, Dean. A pleasure to be on your show. And I hope the readers enjoy the story as much as I enjoy telling it.
1: Again, the book is The Great Halifax Explosion, a World War I story of treachery, tragedy, and extraordinary heroism. As always... You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at HistoryAuthor.com and we hope you will click through there or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to HistoryAuthor.com, click that banner, it takes you through to Amazon and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual as we steam through our fourth calendar year. My thanks to John U. Bacon for joining us and for turning a story from his grandparents into rock solid history we could connect with today. Visit him online at johnubacon.com John U. Bacon on Twitter or Facebook.com slash John U. Bacon author. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. And if you want to follow us at The History Author Show on Instagram, maybe I'll dig up some of my pictures from Halifax and post them up there. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week.